Salute to all of you, my fabulous audience. Welcome to the Backyard Professor Live podcast, Sunday night firesides, where we explore in depth many, many topics that we were not allowed to within Mormonism, about Mormonism and philosophy and science and religion and history and economics. Oh, wait, not economics. <laughs> Nothing's more boring or depressing. Anyway, uh, I do have an announcement I'd like to make. I'm going to make it right up front here before the vast audience shows up. Hey, Mark Crispin, first, you bet. Or I mean, yeah, baby. boy, you're going to ruin my reputation, you know. <laughs> hey, Gail Capson, good to see you, hon. All right, hey, um, I have a major announcement to make. I will make it here in just a few minutes uh, when more of you show up. Uh, hey, Mo, see ya. Woohoo! Yeah, baby. Good to see you. John Laws. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, John. Thanks for commenting. Wendy Rowland, good evening to you, too. Richard Petchak, great to see you. Yes. Okay. Uh, my announcement tonight. Uh, I am going to begin to bring in more uh, ideas on Freemasonry and the Temple Endowment, on Freemasonry and Mormonism, because a new day has dawned, and I have some very exciting news. Jeff Bradshaw, another Mormon apologist. Now, Jeff is not your typical Mormon apologist. I consider him a good friend. We, we never did get loggerheads like I did with other apologists. Uh, I disagree fundamentally with a lot of what he says, however, and that's all good, because you don't have to agree to be friends with people. That's something that many of the Mormons still need to grasp. They're getting there, I think. But tonight, Jeff is launching a Zoom meeting of his book on Freemasonry and the origins of the Latter-day Saint endowment. And he's invited me to the Zoom meeting, and I am going to go to that. Uh, it starts at 7, so I'm going to give you an introduction tonight for an hour on my topic of the Book of Abraham and Freemasonry. And I will continue it again tomorrow night at 6 o'clock or, or I hope I get done by six. I'm getting a new fridge tomorrow. We have to do a lot of construction. I have to unload the fridge, bring the new fridge in, etc. I'm going to try like crazy to get on at six. If it's not until seven, I apologize in advance. I'm not quite sure when, but, and then I will get further into it tomorrow night. Now I am having Dan Vogel, the man, on as my guest beginning next Sunday at 6 p.m. And Dan and I are going to be going the rounds through the chapters of this magnificent new book, Method Infinite, on Freemasonry and Mormonism by Cheryl Bruno, Dr. Nick Letursky, and Joe Steve Swick III. This is the information I'm going to bring out tonight on the Book of Abraham and the influence of Masonry on it. I also, since I am 
going to begin this series on Freemasonry and the parallels in Mormonism with Dan Vogel. I also had a wonderful two-hour chat this afternoon on the telephone with another Master Mason, and he is the former worshipful master of his lodge, and he is exquisitely knowledgeable of Freemasonry. He and I are also going to team up for some wonderful discussion. I will have him as a guest on my uh, podcasts also. I'm not sure whether we're going to wait until I'm done talking with Dan Vogel. I mean, he and I, we could go 15 sessions. We just don't know. We will work it out this week and let you know next week. So you don't want to miss it. There is some wonderful new information on Freemasonry and the Mormon Endowment by Jeff Bradshaw. That's why I need to go to his meeting tonight at 7, so I'm going to cut this just a little bit short. Don't worry. Tomorrow night at 6 or 7, I will pick it back up, and we will begin exploring the incredible ideas on the Book of Abraham and Masonry. With Jeff's new book, which I will acquire this week, we will yet have more information. So apparently there's a trend going on here that is bringing this to our attention, and I am going to be right in the thick of this. As a Mason, I have a great interest in this. I have dear friends who are superb Masons, who are also going to be guests on my show. I have excellent historians such as Dan Vogel, whom I'm going to have as a guest on my show. So this next up and coming few months promises to get very interesting on this subject from all points of view, which is exactly how I like it. So let me just say, hey, Tim Rathbone, welcome, my good friend, Doug Vincent. Good to see you, Bubba. Debbie Joe, welcome back. Saw you this morning. John Rosbarski, I always love having you on. I love having all of you on. Thank JB Maybe One, yes, from New York City. I noticed you got late here late this morning. No worries. We'll make it up tonight. So. Ooh, spilling my water all over me. We have lots of exciting information coming up. Now, I'm going to give you an introduction, and here is, this is fast becoming my theme, sincerely, is that we all have been taught what to think our entire lives. We we get that. Okay, yeah, we, we've had boatloads of that noise. The question is, how do we think? I'm going to start illustrating that in my videos so that we can learn how to think. I have a very important key that I'm going to share with you. So, hey, Newton Lemos, good to see you again. Welcome from Brazil. Dan Vogel. Yes. Yes. Dan Vogel, we will see you here next week. Absolutely, my friend. Yes, he's going to be the guest of honor. Patty Cake, welcome. Good to see you again. So what I want to do in order to help us how to think, I want to give an example really quick before I get into my introduction tonight. And it is simply this. We 
are, and, and I'm not trying to get us rebellious, but we are too believing. Now, I'm not criticizing belief, I promise. But we, for whatever reason, have it in our heads that when someone has told us something, then it must be true. Now, we've had this issue with books, right? Scholarly articles. I mean, it's in a peer-reviewed journal, for crying out loud. It's got to be true. That article would not have been published in that peer-reviewed journal of scholarship with people testing its premises and conclusions and its internal coherency and logic, etc. So if it's printed, it's true. We are too believing in this regard. And on one person, I really want to emphasize this how to think. Because I know there are philosophers out there right now who have said in print and on YouTube and in person that, and to my way of thinking, this is so unfortunate. But there are people out there who are parroting a thought that just shocks me because he's one of my favorite authors, and I have read him, and I will continue reading him, where people have said, the world-renowned mythologist Joseph Campbell is outdated. No one accepts his views anymore. Now, 90% of the people who say that, my suspicion is they have not bothered to read very much of Joseph Campbell. Because if we are to the point to where we will simply believe what someone in a college professor chair says, or let's say a multimillionaire man who made an invention and knows how to make lots of money, and they come forward and they say, Joseph Campbell is outdated, his views aren't accurate, they don't work, etc., and we simply believe them, then you are being brainwashed. That is the essence of brainwashing, folks. I'm here to correct that. If since we just believe when someone says something, then listen to me. Joseph Campbell is one of the great intellects of our age, and you seriously ought to read everything the man printed that you can get your hands onto. Now there, I said that. Now, I would very much love for people to simply believe me, except I'm going to ask you to do one step further. Don't believe me because I just said that. Go look at his writings. Go read him for Pete's sake and see for yourselves. This is a proper step to learn how to think. I have a text. Campbell wrote a lot. His most popular work was his interview with Bill Moyers, The Power of Myth, back in the mid-1980s. I can't 
fathom that it's been that long already, uh, 40 years. It's mind-boggling. But from my stance, his best book was this one, The Inner Reaches of Outer Space, Metaphor as Myth and Religion. This is one of the most deeply profound little books I have ever read and reread and reread and reread and reread. And it's only 148 pages. You can polish it off in a nice, sunny, calm afternoon. If you're in the hurricane, I wouldn't suggest reading it during that time. But um, what I found here is going to be an absolutely wonderful introduction to this Book of Abraham Freemasonry theme. So bear with me as I bring about an interesting interpretation. And I can tell already I'm not going to have time to read everything that I had marked. So I will bring this up again tomorrow night. I will go to this part right here. This is The Inner Reaches of Outer Space by Joseph Campbell, page 126. In my opinion, one of his greatest works he ever published. Deeply profound. Every page is worth pondering. The idea of God is innate in man's mind from the beginning. So that by reason alone, man has arrived everywhere at a recognition of God which is sufficient. Religious intolerance is blasphemy, since in their primal, in their primal ground and ultimate sense, all religions are one, as is mankind. The way of art when followed properly in James Joyce's sense, and I will explain this again tomorrow night if you're lost, this leads us to the mountaintop that is everywhere beyond opposites of transcendental vision. And this is where the great poet William Blake discovered and declared that the doors of perception are cleansed of everything appears to man, and that is infinite. The engraving on the back of the dollar bill. And this is what I wanted to get to right there. There's my dollar bill. I'm going to hold that up so that you can see it. Oh, I wish I had a, hopefully you can see it. You can all look at the back of your dollar bill. I'm going to talk about that symbol here. The engraving on the back of the dollar bill delivers its message as a work of art. In the way, however, of an illustration of concepts that are already formed, not as an affective, unprecedented image in itself. Many works of religious art are of this kind. They illustrate legends that are already known of all kinds of stuff, saints, angels, incarnations, and the like. And they commonly contain, like this image, that was produced by the deists in our country, the all-seeing eye on top of the pyramid with its Latin inscriptions and the dating of the pyramid and the symbolism of the layers of the pyramid, etc. All of that is relevant as a concept produced in a unique work of art 
And this is so remarkable because I really wish I would have thought ahead of time so that I can show you this. I didn't. Oh, well, it's okay. Every one of you get a look out at the dollar bill. The idea here that is so important is simply this. On the back of that dollar bill, standard symbolic devices, which are addressed, are not addressed to our eye. That image of art is not trying to capture our eye so that we can say, oh, hey, that's kind of cool. Who would have thought of putting the all-seeing eye of masonry on top of the pyramid? That's kind of funky. But none of us ever look deeply at that symbol, and we ought to, because to the eye, yet through the eye to the intellect is what this meaning is supposed to illustrate to us. And such a composition may be viewed by our eye, but in itself it lacks magic. Or as James Joyce put it, the radiant, the word he uses is claritas. That symbol does not give us claritas, radiance, of an achieved work of proper art. In a work of proper art, the heart is awakened. Not by the form of the art. We're not interested in the form of that art piece in our intellect and heart. By the eye, it's really kind of a cool-looking concept. Come on, that's cool. But that's not the point. When the form of the work, it is the content of what the overarching combination of symbolisms mean that become relevant to us in that interesting work of, quote, art, unquote. This is the theme. So the artist fashioning a work of this kind serves as the priest of an assured tradition, that of an innovating creator. And so we begin to look for relationships on theological ground to the polity of our nation in the United States. It's an American symbol, so I'm sorry I'm going to use the United States. I know some of you are not from America. This is on our money, so it's talking to us, I suppose. So it's founded in benevolence and reason that is represented in the ideogram of the outspread eagle on our dollar bill. This is on the other side of the dollar bill, the outspread eagle. Overhead, we see the twofold tetractus 
that star of David, Solomon's seal of the 13 five-pointed stars and other recurrences of the number 13 in this part of the symbol is the sum of the feathers in the, or I mean in, sorry, the sum of the feathers in the eagle's tail is three plus three plus three. And the offered choices of either a spray of laurel in the one claw of the eagle or a sheaf of 13 arrows in the other claw, it is ironic that today we should be passing around as legal tender these sociological manifestos without being able to read the message of democracy engraved on every one of these dollars, the spiritual inspiration out of which their economic value has been derived so that not only the message, but even the vocabulary has been lost because We've gotten down to the lowest denominator. I want money. And we don't recognize the spiritual impact of the ground of this money. And so it's degraded. This is not wealth. It's paper. When we mistake the symbol for the reality, then we misunderstand everything. This is just paper. It has no value other than what we agree is the meaning of the value of this. But as far as value, it's just paper. It doesn't mean anything. So. What we need to do is get back behind what the symbol means in order to come to an understanding of its terrific value. That's what's important. And Campbell begins to elaborate. Now, I've seen other definitions and descriptions of this elsewhere. I'm going to go with Joseph Campbell for right now. Right. On the reverse great seal of the United States, and I tore this dollar in half, it's probably actually be easier now to hold up the symbol. <laughs> hey, well, look at that. Way easier. The eye on top of that pyramid can be understood as the eye of the Holy Spirit. And this eye is at the summit of a pyramid of creation like Black Elk's vision, the great Sioux medicine man who stood upon the top of the world mountain and saw all things in their spiritual essence in his magnificent vision. So here too, this is, this is on the summit of the pyramid of creation. It is a counterpart of the eye of Vishnu mentioned in the Indian tale of the humbling of Indra. One may think of it as connoting metaphorically that mysterious impulse out of which the Big Bang of creation sent flying into distances that are still receding in our expanding space today, 
hundreds of millions of exploding atomic furnaces, which are seen from this earth as stars, constellations, and a Milky Way of innumerable points of light. The present pyramid that you're seeing here is not, however, of that first creation, but it is of a second creation, a new order of the world. And that's the saying under the pyramid, Novus Ordo Seclorum, represented here as constituted of exactly 13 courses on the pyramid, there are 13 courses of brick, stone, and these are allegorical of our 13 original states. Whereas behind the new pyramid, there is only a desert that we see. Before and around it are the sprouting signs of a new and fresh beginning of growth dated 1776, on the bottom of that pyramid, there is a new growth now coming. And you take that number, 1776, you add the 1 plus the 7 plus the 7 plus the 6, you get 21. Mankind, that is to say, has herewith come of age. And it's taken to itself responsibility and authority for the shaping of human lives according to reason. Moreover, between the dated course of the pyramid's base, which tells of an occurrence in time, and the eye on top of the pyramid, which is of eternity, there are 12 courses. This is the number of signs of the belt of the zodiac as defining the limits of the physical world. The number 13, accordingly, which is that of the dated course at the base, represents a creative transcendence of the boundary, not death, as appears in the popular superstition of 13 at table, but an achieved life beyond death as signified in the model of the table of the Last Supper, where the 12 apostles were of the number of the signs of the belt of the zodiac by which the physical world is bounded. Whereas the incarnate God who is about to die, though indeed among them in the field of time, was of eternity beyond the pale of death. So the number 13 of our 13 originating states is here interpreted and celebrated as the sign of a resurrection of life out of death, just as that new growth in the desert signifies. Fresh leaves from a desert, a wholesome gift of the light of reason as an awakener to maturity of the mind in its social conscience. Now, that's quite a sermon on a fascinating symbol on a piece of paper. But there's more. Because on the other side of the dollar bill is the other symbol that I want to show you. And this one also 
is exquisitely important. Hold on. Let me see if I can get stable here. Holy shish kebab. This is the obverse of the great seal of the United States. In the radiant disc above the American bald eagle's head, the stars of the original 13 states are composed to form a solemn seal symbolic of the union of body and soul, of spirit and matter. Each of the interlaced equilateral triangles, one is pointed upward, the other one is pointed downward, is a Pythagorean tetractus or a perfect triangle of fourness of nine points, four to a side, enclosing a tenth representing the generative center. Still point of the turning world is what it's called, out of which the others derive their force. Now, the upward triangle is of spiritual, and the downward pointing triangle is of physical energy. So, being interlaced, the two represent the physical world recognized as informed by the spiritual, and in exactly this sense, they appear at the lotus center of the awakened heart, which is chakra number four in the lotus symbols series of the Indian Kundalini. In the classical imagination, the nine circumferential points of the Pythagorean Tetractus were identified with the nine muses, the sources of inspiration. And the point in the center was identified with Apollo, around whose radiance formed the nine dance. In Jewish thought, the sign of the two triangles together is known as the Magen David, the shield of David, and read as connoting the Shekinah, or the presence of God in Israel, as originally in the burning bush and in the cloud on the summit of Mount Sinai. In the Great Seal of the United States, the reference is to the inspiration of the light of reason in the constitution of the originating 13 colonies brought together as one nation. E pluribus unum, out of many are one. These are homologous, though culturally differentiated interpretations of the same elementary idea. When viewed as outlining a pyramid, the upward-pointing triangle matches the pyramid on the reverse of the seal with the single point at its apex corresponding to the eye out of which the expanding form of the universe has proceeded. As symbolized in the traditional Pythagorean Tetractus, the energy emanating from that initial point which is of the opening both from and to eternity, it first yields duality, two points, measure and chaos, subject and object, light and dark, odd and even, male and female, etc., which then relate to each other in three ways, three points, either A dominant, B dominant, or A and B in accord. Whence derive all the phenomenal forms in the field of space-time, 
which is four points, the four quarters of the earth and heavens. There is a verse in the Chinese Tao Te Ching, the Tao produced one, one produced two, two produced three, three produced all things. So the ancient symbolism of the tetractus here on this dollar bill, one point, two points, three points, and four points, which series when read in the opposite sense of ascending or returning to the source yields the interesting series 432. Connotations of the same order pertain, of course, to the downhill side turned tetractus, with its single point at the apex opening also from and to eternity, so that in the true fashion of the Magan David, the seal of Solomon, what is above is below, and the energy of the spirit, however you name it, whether from without, as from the eye, the apex above, or from within the world, the apex below, is one. Moreover, since from every terminal point of the six-pointed Solomon seal, the same increasing series of two to three to four proceeds, it follows that the intended sense of the radiant symbol of 13 stars above that eagle's head must have been the same essentially as that of Black Elk's remark, the center is everywhere. It's above and below. It is north, south, east, and west, with an additional 18th century implication of the humanizing light of reason, reflected universally in the clarified consciousness of all of mankind. The number of stripes on the American Eagle Shield is 13. So also the number of the arrows and of the leaves of the laurel spray in its talons, while the number of the feathers of its tail is nine, and the eagle's head is looking toward that sprig of laurel, which signifies to live in peace, not in war. Now, if that isn't one hell of a fascinating analysis of the symbolism of the American dollar bill on the back, I have no idea what is. But the lesson here is that as we look at symbolism, we don't concretize the metaphors or we lose the lavish potential meaning in all sizes and in all exercises, whether spiritual or physical. And so the idea of the art, the idea of analyzing a symbolism within a tradition from which the symbolism arose is magnificent to do if we do it with the intent 
of learning how to be spiritual. And I know that drives me absolutely blitzoid bonkers crazy sometimes. Because how come the spiritual is always elevated over the physical? What is wrong with the physical? Well, nothing's wrong with it. That's not the point. The reason they're showing these in opposition in the upward triangle and the downward triangle, in the, this is actually a better depiction of that eagle, is because what it's showing is all opposites can be united into a much greater whole than not. And through an acquiring knowledge of the whole, we have a much easier context of truth. The symbolism is never literal. It's always like the finger pointing at the moon. Don't look at the finger. Look beyond the literal into what the symbol is pointing to. And that is the better basis of interpreting symbolism. This is why I wanted to use this as a, an introduction, as it were, to this book of Abraham and Freemasonic symbolism, because, as I have shown in numerous videos a few months back, can you believe this, you guys? That's already been almost six months ago. Is that not shocking? I can't believe it's been six months ago since I elaborated on the Joseph Smith papyri and the facsimiles and Joseph Smith's translation of the book of Abraham and all of the ridiculous literalist Mormon apologists' interpretations trying to save the book of Abraham. And now I have come to appreciate an entirely different point of view that I had never before thought about that is discussed in Method Infinite. And that is the background, the symbolism, the meanings of the stories in Freemasonry and how from Joseph Smith's understanding of Freemasonry included so much of that into the book of Abraham. He included so much of it into the facsimiles of the book of Abraham. And I mean all three of them. And then he included it, of course, into his magnum opus, the temple endowment, the ritual to perfection, the spiritual ascension to heaven, of which there are Mormons today who even argue against that interpretation. <laughs> if the idea of the temple endowment is not to give us a spiritual ascension through the veil into the celestial world, then what the hell is the point? 
<laughs> That's how I have asked them before, right? So it takes a, uh, it doesn't take genius. Forget genius. None of us are geniuses. Don't worry about that. That's irrelevant. You don't know mathematics? Yeah, it's all good. It doesn't matter. Oh, you don't know any foreign languages? Who gives a flying flip? Who cares? None of that is pertinent to being able to tap into the symbols and their meanings once we grasp the background knowledge involved in Joseph Smith's life. And that background knowledge was Freemasonry. And, and I know the burned over district, all of the different, uh, you know, as religions love to do, all of the various fighting over the doctrines and all the different churches saying low here and low there, you know, like the Joseph Smith made up later story about the burned over district and there was a war of words and religion was going bonkers, blitzoid and all that. And hell, I didn't know where to turn. Everybody said my soul was saved in the one hand. And on the other hand, they said I was damned to an eternity in hell, et cetera, et cetera. Now that is also part of the background, but that played in the stronger historically verified background from my take of Freemasonry and Method Infinite discusses that. So, and Dan Vogel and I are going to be discussing that in, in some fun, wonderful discussions. We're putting them together now this, this week. Uh, we will be getting together and then we'll begin our series next Sunday. So I wanted to give this to you as a background basis for um, this introduction to the book of Abraham and the relevance of the masonry symbols on that dollar bill. This is remarkably fun and interesting to look at. So um, I, unfortunately, I apologize that I do have to quit early tonight. I will pick up tomorrow night, six o'clock. If I can, I'm getting a new fridge, like I said at the beginning. So if not six, then seven, but I do want to include uh, the information on Book of Abraham and Freemasonry, and it's a lot of information. So it might be a couple of hours. So I'm going to try to get here tomorrow night at six, potentially seven. Please don't, you know, be disappointed if you show up and I'm not here at six. If I can get here six, six fifteen, whatever, then I will. But right now I do have to go attend Jeff Bradshaw's Zoom meeting because this again is bringing yet again the newest, most up to date hopefully, materials on the Mormon Temple Endowment and Freemasonry, and I will begin to incorporate that material into my own podcast, and Dan Vogel and I, I'm sure, will talk about it, and the other Master Mason that I'm going to have on this series is, uh, we are going to talk about it. I'm not quite sure yet if I can use his name or not. I will find out from him. It's not a big deal, but he is a masterful knowing Freemason. Dan Vogel has talked to him and knows him well, so anyway, okay, a lot of exciting new developments are occurring, and that's what thrills me about all of this, is we really, for the next year or so, we have a lot of cool new learning to do. And all I can say to that is, so mote it be. <laughs> so you guys have a great night tonight. I will see you again tomorrow night, 6 o'clock. 
And in the meantime, remember, be good, do well, have fun, be good neighbors, go to bed early tonight and get your beauty sleep. Not that any of you need it. You're all beautiful people, but I do. So I'm going to go to bed early tonight. All right. Hey, see you guys later. Thanks for showing up. Thank you for all the likes.